0: I always have so many notes on these movies. I wonder if I'm going to have as many when I get to the Hobbit trilogy. I guess we'll find out. Probably today, because I'm really trying to crank these out here. (laughs) Quick, small story. Uh, Three little points before I get to the movie proper. This one is the one I usually associate with the Empire Strikes Back of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And there's two big reasons for it. Well, I guess three. First, because it's the overall highest quality, in my opinion, of the trilogy. Second, because it's very character-focused, much more tightly down on the specific actions of individuals and examining how they move and how they go. And three, because it's probably the darkest of the three. I also have seen this movie more than the rest of them. As in, more than, like, all of the other five. See, weird (laughs) weird story here, and I only mention this because I am probably just a wee bit biased as a consequence of this, but once upon a time, uh, I was in a wheelchair. A lot of you who know me know about this incident, so I'm not going to go into details, that's not relevant. The point is, I was on so many pain meds that it was actually difficult for me to play video games at that point in my life, because I literally couldn't think properly enough to play, and then, of course, you know, I was having trouble doing anything else because i have a very active mind i have since i have a child and i don't like not doing so my mom who was a wonderful woman decided to change her netflix subscription to my address for a bit now <laughs> that probably sounds a little weird nowadays but believe it or back back in the dark ages in, in the long long ago uh the way netflix worked was they would mail you dvds with a little little sleeve that you could then put in and then mail back. So that's that's how that works. So I ended up watching a lot of movies during that uh I think it was like three or four months. I'm not actually I don't actually remember the exact period of time. Because my life was kind of a haze there. But that was also uh you know, at this point in time the extended edition DVDs were out, so I got all three. Now, because you could only get so many at a time, I could only get like the Fellowship of the Ring Extended Edition, and then the two towers after I mailed the previous two in, because you could only have so many on loan at a given point in time, and then I would get Return of the King. And as a result, I couldn't have all three handy, so I kind of kept a hold of the Return of the King ones and kind of re-watched them a lot. As in, there were some days there where I was just sitting there in my wheelchair, in front of my TV, well, actually in front of my monitor, and I would just pop in Return of the King, and pop in Return of the King Disc 2, watch it to finish, and then pop in Return of the King Disc 1 and just start over again. <laughs> it wasn't exactly a lot of fun, if I'm being totally honest with you, but I never actually got bored of it. It does say volumes for it. Granted, I was kind of out of my gourd at the time, but the fact that I really enjoyed the movie this time around probably says something, too. Now, there's the last the last thing I want to talk about before we get to the movie proper is the one... well, there's actually two flaws with this movie. Two big flaws. Obviously, there's a lot of little flaws. But two big flaws with this movie. One I'll be talking about when it shows up. That's much later. But the other one is the movie's just a little bit too obvious at times. The previous two movies knew how to be quite subtle with their uh, symbolism and the fact that I forgot to frickin' mute my phone. Could be quite subtle, you know, and there's a lot of nuance, especially in the performances, Return of the King tends to be extremely blunt. Uh, I'll talk about one of those scenes later. But to mention one now, because it's not really relevant, just one that occurs to me, there's a scene where they're walking through and they see uh, the statue, the, the head of one of the old statues of the Kings of Gondor, who has a wreath of flowers over its head, and, and the light lights up the flowers, and he says, look, the king's got his crown back. I mean, that is just so obvious anyways moving on so as I said this is a very character focused film and it emphasizes that in its intro Fellowship of the Ring began with a war the two towers began with a battle Gandalf versus Durin's Bane Return of the King begins with two hobbits fishing But that is very in keeping with the overall tone of Return of the King. Because Return of the King, again, is the dark one. And Return of the King is also the one that really brings the camera in close on a lot of the characters. And the way that scene goes is kind of horrifying. I do wonder something, though. We've seen before... That different people react differently to the ring, especially on initial proximity. I actually wonder if the ring was stronger back then, which I find unlikely since it's probably stronger now with the whole situation with Sauron, you know, actively moving. I mean, by the time Bilbo found it, the Necromancer was already functioning, right? So I don't think the ring was stronger back then. Therefore, the question is posited. Why do Smeagol and Deagle resort to violence and outright murder within seconds of interacting with the ring for the first time? I do have a theory about that, of course, and it's actually a very, very simple one. I've said before that I don't think that power corrupts. I mean, obviously, some power corrupts. You know, if you're infused with fell energy, you're probably going to be corrupted. But I mean that, in general, the concept of the ability to do. Enabling. It does not corrupt. It, it enables. It allows you to be who or what you really are. It is my theory that Smeagol, Deagle as well, but especially Smeagol, was never a good person. And this was just kind of peeling back the layers to reveal the one who probably never would have actually become who he was under any other circumstances. He probably would have just been a, you know upstanding citizen. Yes, I'll do whatever is told of me. Kind of a thing. We do know one of Smeagol's uh, characteristics was cowardice as well. And, uh, ironically, loneliness. A nice note, by the way, right at the beginning they have a note about how, you know, it's, it's, it, the days are getting darker. Except there's several camera shots that show us clearly why that is. It's not a Final Fantasy XV situation with parasites that eat light. <sighs> Instead, uh, it's actually a little bit of foreshadowing and the establishment of basically the entire first half of the film, which actually is only about the first third of the film, but whatever, in the fact that Sauron is already sending forth his plume. Gandalf later flat out explains the purpose of the Plume of Smoke and how he uses it in order to cover lands in darkness so his troops can move freely. But even this early on, we can tell that he's already starting to extend it. Because they're not actually past the mountains yet. They're not in Mordor yet. And yet they're still already having the smoke over them. So, The process has begun, as they say. And I mention that because there's a lot of little things like that. A lot of visual things and a lot of quiet lines of dialogue that build up to the to the climax scene of when the first battle actually begins. It's, it's again that slow build thing, because it takes like 40 minutes or something to actually get to that battle. I digress, and the battle itself takes forever. But moving on, moving on. Uh, there's a nice little uh, <laughs> there's a nice little point here. Uh, Frodo, of course, is not doing well, as anybody would be with that damn ring around their neck. But the funny thing is, Frodo's not doing well. I mean, picture from what that you've been going without sleep for a few days. Now, speaking personally, there are two points in my life where I have gone without sleep for about a week at a time. And I remember, well, (laughs) I remember how it felt. The details are a little fuzzy, as you might imagine. And it was not pleasant. Just about anybody who goes without sleep for any length of time is going to be a little... Now add the ring poisoning them alongside that and just try to put yourself into the headspace of where Frodo's at right now. And it's really funny because Sam says, it's okay, I've rationed it. Frodo says, why? For the return home. The way Sam says that is so matter-of-fact, and I love it. It also has some symmetry with the later scene, because to him it's so obvious. Well, of course I've saved some food for the road home. I mean, why wouldn't I? We, we want to come back after this, right? <laughs> I mean, we're not just doing all this to then die, right? And I mention that because that had never even occurred to Frodo, who has been quite fatalistic about this since the end of Fellowship, actually. So then we get to Saruman, who, of course, has basically no role in this movie. I can get why they cut him out of the extended edition, but it's a damn shame, because it is truly the conclusion to his storyline. First of all, he looks terrible. Um, As I said, his appearance has just kind of been degenerating in, in subtle little dirty ways over, the, over the, all three films, actually. I have a question for you. He attempts a white peace with, with Theoden. Do you think he was genuine about that? I think he was genuine, but not for any sense of, you know, I, I am feeling repentant. I think he was genuine in the sense that I'd really like to stop having you as an enemy. Could we, could we go to that? Is that a thing we can do? Theoden, of course, throws it back at him, and it's interesting how, how against Saruman Theoden is, because he then reaches out his hand to Grima. His, uh, Saruman's bitterness and his fear are palpable. And he actually, uh, he, he mocks Gandalf with the truth. With the reality of what has already been something I've been mentioning since the first movie. The fact that the choice has always been a fool's hope. Or, you know, it, you could believe in a fool's hope and accept death, or you can capitulate. And he flat out hits Gandalf with this. You claim you care about these people. You claim you like them so much and that you set them off to die. Why would you do that if you actually care about them? And then he hits Theoden with the truth as well. Just nails him with it. You did not win Helm the-, the victory at Helm's Deep does not belong to you, Theoden. And it's it, it's a, it, it just smacks Theoden across the face. You can tell that. And then, of course, like I said, Theoden reaches out to Grima, and I found it a little bit strange. But then I started thinking about it. Of all people, Theoden would understand what it's like to be in thrall to Saruman, wouldn't he? And it's, it all comes out in that one line he says, be, fr- be rid of him. Be free. You know, be free of him. It's a great line, because again, he, speaking from personal experience, come on down, Grima. I'll take you in. And then Grima stabs him. And then for reasons I don't actually fully understand, Legolas shoots Grima. I've never really understood that other than the fact that they needed to get Grima out of the picture and decided rather than having him just go back to Rohan, they needed to kill him. Uh, I've got nothing on that one. (laughs) Now, I admit that I'm an idiot. I never picked up on this before, but... Saruman is impaled on a wooden spike. Christopher Lee is impaled through the chest with... Yeah, I I can't believe I never actually connected that before. And it was done on purpose, by the way. The -the behind-the-scenes stuff makes that clear. So then we skip scenes. There's a quote that I like to use to this day. Hail the victorious dead. It's a great quote. And it, because it has so many layers of meaning behind it. I also find it interesting Aragorn doesn't drink to that initial toast. Theoden acknowledge, I'm going to be checking my notes a lot here, by the way, so forgive me for looking down here. I'll try to just hold my notes up a little bit more so I'm looking more at the camera. Because I've got so much notes here, I don't want to miss anything for this one. So Theoden acknowledges the truth before Eowyn. And... The, the the reality is that, of course, Theoden was part of, of the situation. Theoden helped to win Helm's Deep. But ultimately, as he says, it was not Theoden who led us to victory. It was actually Aragorn who flat out was the leader who led Rohan to victory. Theoden kind of went along with that and then was, was galvanized as a result of Aragorn's actions, which is pretty much the definition of a leader, as I have defined many times. Now, there's a scene that's coming up here. Uh, it's a great scene. There's some great symmetry between it. They sing the song, Merry and Pippin sing the song that they had all the way back in Fellowship of the uh, Ring. And they talk about... Da, 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 da. And Pippin stalls for a little bit when he looks at Gandalf. Now that's kind of puzzled me for a while, because why there? Why that exact moment? Why then? And I rewatched the scene a couple of times, and it. I, this might be an example of me overthinking it, but... The line right before he stalls is, and I wrote it down here, the only brew for the brave and true. And the moment he says that, he happens to be looking at Gandalf, who has been chastising him since the first movie for not being brave and not being true. And there's just that stall, and of course, the obvious reasoning behind it, the fact that that's in, in beginning the particular character arcs that both Gandalf and Pippin are going to be going through throughout the rest of the film. So then there's Eowyn's dream. It's a good dream. Um, there's a lot of weird symbolism that goes into dreams in this series. I, I sometimes wonder if they ever have a, a dream, and they're like, oh, this must be some great portent, and it was just a dream of them you know, losing all their teeth or something. <laughs> but no legolas notices the spread of the darkness this is actually the third time total that the the, the smoke spreading has been emphasized once visually once audibly and now uh, both actually with so i guess technically the fourth time with legolas saying it and them showing what's happening and and then a tiny little thing happens and basically throws everything all to hell you know th- i actually I don't have a proper term for this, but this is the kind of thing I do as a GM fairly often. I let things progress, and I wait until the party has gotten a handle on things, and has had a big victory, has had a big celebration, has been rewarded, and then something goes wrong. And it's usually catastrophically, nightmarishly wrong. I swear I'm not an evil GM. But that's exactly what happens here. Pippin picks up the Palantir and comes into direct contact with Sauron. This is just me speaking, but I kind of like the idea that Pippin would have literally died if Gandalf was not there to heal him right there on the spot, right after he interacted with it. The sheer palpable dread, fear, and pain that Sauron fueled into him was too much for him to take, and he literally just would have died on the spot. I like that idea. And then, of course, it's funny because that scene... also establishes the advantage for the heroes which is something tolkien does a lot actually if you pay attention things that are advantages are also weaknesses and can be used in either direction based on the circumstances so yes they you know sauron now thinks pippin has the ring and is aware of how close it is you know rohan being the big target and is moving adamantly and quickly against gondor in order to ensure that there is no king there's no unification of men and that gives them the edge of knowing exactly where to go to defend. Although, I have to be honest, I find it weird that they needed that information to begin with. Because Gondor is such an obvious... I mean, Minas Tirith in particular is such an obvious first strike point. Hmm. Then again, Sauron doesn't really use tactics in the strictest sense of the word. I'll talk more about that later, though. So then Gandalf... Uh, well, actually, hang on. So first, Theoden has a wonderfully eerie question. I've actually talked about this before and how difficult of a question it is to properly answer. I've talked about this over in Voyager and in some of my recent ruminations. The concept boiled down comes across as why should I help us when it hurts me? Because it's not as though we will not benefit, including me, but I will be the one who is injured by this action. And that is basically what Theoden asks. Why should we... Ate, what, what do we owe Gondor? You know? And <laughs> I could point out, of course, he didn't ask Gondor for help. You yeah. know, oh, heal me, heal me. I could also point out that they haven't exactly... I, I mean, Gondor's not exactly in a great position to defend them or help them right now. I could also point out that Gondor has been indirectly helping Rohan, but none of that matters in the moment because the question he asks is still valid. If you don't understand, if you haven't seen any of my other works where I talk about the concept of why should I help us when it hurts me, think about this. Let's say you've got a group of troops here. And there's a couple enemies over here. Now, you're looking down at the top-down view here. You know that if you select all and attack move, you win. But but that's from like a, a tactical perspective. There's no reality thought into that. Uh, as far as the people. Imagine going down and trying to convince those three people at the front of your group, I need you to go charge these people who are very likely to kill you because we will succeed if you do so. There always has to be someone at the front of the line, in other words. Now, I know that's a military analogy, but it applies to so many different types of situations. You know, why should I give up my resources? Why should I help you with this? Why should I acknowledge this concept? You know, there's so many different types of social interactions and interactions in general where some people take a loss in order to benefit the overall whole, which may include the people taking the loss. I say may because, of course, if those people at the front of the line live, they will benefit from the victory as much as anyone else will but they are more likely to die. So Gandalf has his sight thing again. You know, he, he sees several things, uh, especially the significant thing, points that he shoves down Aragorn's throat. And then there's a great scene where, first of all, Mary gives Pippin the last of the long bottom leaf. Keep that in the back of your mind. Second of all, Pippin says, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Which is hilarious, because that is exactly where Pippin is at mentally. Like, I, I can just say I'm sorry and make it better, because that works that way, right? Right? Oh, God, please let it work that way. Now, remember something I talked about all the way back in Fellowship of the Ring? Something that's been a part of their dynamic through... All two movies thus far, and, and the beginning of this one. Mary and Pippin are always together, and always a team. It was the very first scene we were ever introduced to them. They were obviously getting into mischief, but they were a team. Excuse me. They were working together. They were unified. And now, for the first time, they are split up. And there's going to be some interesting parallels between Mary and Pippin, as the camera bounces cam- uh, perspective back and forth between the two. It's also, it hits both of them pretty hard. You know, Pippin is just, oh god, I don't know how to deal with this, and Merry is is on the verge of tears. We'll see how both grow as a result of this. A quick note here. I have a note here comparing Sauron to the Reapers from Mass Effect. To explain that a little bit, the Reapers are obviously stronger than just about anything else on an individual scale, but... <laughs> I don't, I really don't want to get into a Mass Effect debate here, so all I'm going to say is that it's a well established within Mass Effect 1, at the very least, that the Reapers are not super amazingly super indestructible, but instead that they go out of their way to weaken the races by Ensuring that they all follow the same pattern of technology, by ensuring that they're separated, by using indoctrination in order to have turncoats, by manipulating other races to fight against each other, and basically spending lots and lots of time weakening the various forces so that the Reapers can just sweep through. So that they don't have to try. I bring this up because that's kind of where Sauron's at. It is debatable that Sauron, if he just decided to unleash, could just sweep over the rest of Middle-earth. That is actually possible. But at the same time, it's entirely possible that he knows not only his own weakness, because as I'll point out later, his forces are nowhere near as strong as they seem to be, but also that he himself is afraid. That he himself is kind of a prisoner of the despair problem that I'll be talking about quite a lot, uh, because despair is probably one of the biggest themes of this film. And so he goes through all these efforts to weaken and divert, di- diversify, or that's the wrong word, divide, excuse me, all of his opponents so they can't actually unify. And his big reasoning for sending his army after Minas Tirith is not its strategic importance and not the fact that it's the first target after Esculiath and not anything else. It's just, I want to make sure that the enemy doesn't unify. (sighs) Right, right. Hang on. Just a second. I made a note on, like, page two, which I... Oh my god, I have so many pages. There we go. Okay. We'll get to it. So then there's Arwen's scenes. Whoops. And uh, as I mentioned before, they would have fit a little bit better in Two Towers. But in hindsight, I actually disagree with myself on that. Because I think it fits slightly better into Return of the King. It's just not as a part of Arwen's story, but instead as a part of Aragorn's story. Which I think is why I had that opinion before. Because as far as it goes for Arwen's story, it should have been back in Two Towers. But with regards to Aragon's story, which is, the, which is finally being pushed forward in Return of the King, it should be in this one. I'm just checking my notes here really quick. Minas Tirith is amazing. I, I watched a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff on Minas Tirith in particular. The multiple sets, the multiple models they had, the level of detail on Minas Tirith, the design behind it. it it's all absolutely amazing. They really go out of their way to just nail how sweeping and beautiful and amazing this place is, and I love it. Yet another new tone is established, by the way. As before, every new place they go to has a different tonality to it. And here, it feels empty. It looks grand and yet abandoned. It looks whitewashed. It looks like a ruin of former greatness, which, I mean, makes perfect freaking sense, given what's happening with Minas Tirith. Honestly, Denethor's throne <laughs> really says all that needs to be said about that. Just as a quick aside to help emphasize my point, notice that they, they go into the hall, Denethor, Denethor's Hall, several times in this movie, and almost every time, most of the people there are quiet and somber, or in the background, or aren't there at all. It is empty and hollow. There is one scene later on when the Fellowship is, ga- is gathered there along with some of their allies. And it it's shot in a different light with different angles and with lots of people who are active showcasing the exact opposite, that now the throne room actually has some activity in it again to help emphasize the life being brought back to it, again, rather overtly, just like the frickin' flower on the tree. Excuse me, my nose is still bothering me. I'm getting over it, I swear. So this is our first real showcasing of Denethor. Sorry, sorry, I just had to punch him. But at the same time, it is actually kind of easy to sympathize with him. He is a broken, despair-riddled individual. Remember how Theoden began in despair and has been, and, and has been trying to climb his way out of that? And will continue to be doing so. Theoden's character arc is still going. Denethor is starting at the same place Theoden was, but worse. Like, just, he's, further down because he's been dealing with it longer but really if you compare Denethor to Theoden there are several very strong parallels between the two I mean they did both lose their son they are both leaders of men not true king kings not kings of men but kings of their own particular regions yes I know he's a steward but whatever and they have they they both have their own problems one being targeted by Saruman and one being targeted by Sauron I will make an aside here. I know I don't bring up the books often, but it's interesting that they completely fling the Palantir of the White Tower out of the movie entirely. And I find that interesting because it does 100% explain Denethor. Why he has sunk so far into despair. Why he is the way he is. You know, in the movie, he basically comes across as someone who has given into despair the end. In other words, he is basically just a weak-willed man. Whereas in the books, it's made more clear that he was deliberately poisoned as a form of psychological attack by Sauron, thus turning him into a weak, broken old man. So, we see Denethor. Um, he is, without question, the most sunk into despair of everyone. I'm going to be mentioning the word despair a lot. It's been a theme through all of the trilogy, to some extent or another, because the difference between despair and hope has always been, that, that contrast has always been showcased. And again, as I mentioned, that was part of Saruman's arc. But now it's being brought way up to the forefront. It is the primary theme of Return of the King. And so he is the most into despair. He is so far in that he, you know, please take, take my service, says Pippin. And his response is to barely respond. He barely cares. And then he cares more about politics than reality. The rule, rule of, of so the uh, you know rule of Gondor is mine and no other. First of all, I want to give praise to the actor who plays Denethor. He really does nail. Like, there's a lot of stuff he does with his face, and there's a lot of good close-up shots that really help to emphasize the level of acting he's putting into it. It's great stuff. But there's also some great directing going on here, great cinematography, because there's a shot where he stands up and he's like, "Rule of Gondor is mine," and. Either picture it in your head or watch it again. The way he does that, he looks like he's standing proud and tall, and he's like, ha ha, big, intimidating, and then immediately the camera jumps to the side and sees him and he looks the exact opposite. He lo- he's he's hunched over, he's wilted, he looks like a broken, ruined man who can barely even get to eye level with Gandalf. The contrast between Rrr, and Rrr, is is stark and very well done. If a bit overt. As I said, that's going to be kind of a running theme in Return of the King. I wonder... So I mentioned the long bottom leaf. Well, then Gandalf starts smoking. Quick anecdote. uh, Several people think that the, the pipe weed was actually tobacco. Not marijuana, as some people in more modern times have taken it to be. But actually tobacco. Just plain old. And the reasoning being that he didn't want something as plain and ordinary like tobacco to be mentioned in his story because it would make it sound too mundane. I-, I like that interpretation personally, and it's the one that makes the most sense to me. I just thought I'd mention it. So he's got the last of the long bottom leaf with him, right? Then Gandalf is seen smoking. I actually really wonder if Pippin, as kind of a gesture, offered the last of it to Gandalf, since Gandalf used to really like Hobbit uh, tobacco. That being said, of course, this brings up a point that I actually brought up back in Two Towers. The fact that Gandalf, with his new form, if you will, with his new body, is actually completely unprepared and unaccustomed to smoking. And so he starts coughing, like anybody would when they first start smoking. It's a nice touch, a very small reminder to, to keep, keep in the back of our mind that this is Gandalf II, if you will, or at least his second body. So then there's a lot of jumping around. Uh, and I'm going to try and hit my, these notes as we go here. Uh, took uh, actually wrote his name name down as Took, Took, Took. Uh, Pippin. Anyway, anyway, whatever. Pippin. He drops all pretenses, and he mentions, you know, I I didn't want to be in a battle, but waiting at the edge of one that I can't escape is even worse. And then he asks if there was any hope. Gandalf's line summarizes probably the biggest theme of the Lord of the Rings trilogy in a nutshell, and I just mentioned it myself. There was there was never really much hope. Only a fool's hope. And that concept that I've been talking about this whole time kind of stems from this idea, that it was always a fool's hope. Minas Tirith, of course, doesn't really have a proper army, not like certain other forces do. I mean, of course, they have quite a bit of a garrison, but that's a little bit different from a mobilized army. And that also kind of helps to explain why Gondor is screwed, because, and I'm going to bring this up now, because it'll be relevant later, Helm's Deep was a little bit of a different situation to Minas Tirith because in Helm's Deep, they knew the enemy was coming, they had reinforcements, and they had time to prepare, and they were ready when they came. Minas Tirith was the exact opposite. They had no reinforcements, at least at first. They had tons of time to prepare, but didn't. Denethor didn't let anyone prepare. In fact, pay attention at the first few minutes of the battle. Nobody even starts fighting back until Gandalf starts ordering them to. Everyone's just like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Let's just stand here and get the crap beaten out of us. Again, a very men thing to do, thanks to the whole lack of leadership thing I've talked about before. So why? So we've got the Witch King. He's super terrifying. I'll talk about him later. Don't worry. And Minas Morgul. And then the beacon goes off at Morgul. Now, I've thought about this for a while. Why? Why do that? This will tie in more to the Witch King's thing later, but more and more, especially in this film, it becomes apparent that while the enemy has lots of numbers and whatnot, their real weapon, the thing that they are able to use and allow them to succeed, is despair. That is there so that everyone can see this big, obvious, spiritually charged beacon of literal evil, so that you know, yeah, we're coming for you. I uh, is this is this where I am? Yes. So the army comes storming out of Minas Morgul right after that, and it's not super impressive. And then I wrote, but dot dot dot, because I was pretty sure my memory was right on this, and it was eighteen minutes of film time later, which is God knows how later, how much later in real time. We have a camera shot. This is this is one of the few times Return of the King does something nicely subtle because they're they're climbing up uh, the stair, right, the stair. And the camera pans down just a little bit so we can have an overhead shot, and you can see the army is still streaming out of Minas Morgul. 18 minutes later, there's still more troops coming. There's a lot of shots in this film that really help to emphasize the ridiculous scale of the army that, that, the first army that, that Sauron is fielding. The first army! And it helps to emphasize Sauron's strength. Again, whoosh! You know? Because he does have that strength going for him. I'll talk more about that in a moment, though. It's a great shot. It's a great shot. And then the beacons are lit, which is awesome. Now, uh, I actually like... I, I really do. I like the fact that Denethor is actually angry that the beacons are lit. This, of course, is even funnier much later on when he actually has the point about Theodon's abandoned me and Rohan's betrayed me even though I didn't call them for aid in the first place because I was pissed off about... Sorry, sorry. I don't like Denethor that much. I mean, I sympathize with him, but he deserved that smack in the face. I'm just saying. Notice the difference in reaction, by the way, to Denethor of and Aragorn who's like, oh god, oh god, oh god. They're calling for aid. And then, well... I'll get to that in a moment. So the beacons, I want to talk about the beacons really briefly because I'm not going to go into the in-depth realities of the logistics of a concept like the beacons it's it's a great concept the scene is great it's brilliant the way the camera just kind of I mean it's it's so simple cinematography but it's so well executed that I, I'm willing to give it a pass be- and, and applaud it anyways because you just see it as it pa- basically pans from one beacon to the next and then one beacon to the next and then one beacon to the next and we see this path as it journeys th- through the night And into the next morning, that's how long it takes just in real time for all these beacons to be lit as the path is is traversed. It's great. It's also a really cool idea. The thing I really want to talk about is the fact that maybe this is just me. And again, just thinking the movies here, not the books. Just me, though. I would have this kind of a system be like the ultimate emergency system. You don't light these under any circumstances unless it is the biggest problem, you know. To quote Denethor himself, unless it is at the uttermost end of need, because resupplying these things and getting these things working again and is going to be such a monumental thing to deal with. This is what you use when stuff has hit the fan fifty times already and now you're having trouble with it. And I just mention that because uh, it it just kind of adds more gravity, more weight. To the way the beacons function and why aragorn reacts so strongly if they because put yourself in aragorn's shoes if they have actually lit the beacons if things have gotten that bad we need to do something and then and then theoden and i really really like this because theoden's response In the moment, this is why I like Theoden as a character, even though he actually has most of the same character flaws as, say, Denethor. The difference between Denethor and Theoden, again, the parallels between the two are strong, the difference is Denethor is crushed under the weight of what has happened to him. But Theoden rises up and becomes stronger for it. This is something I've talked about many times in literature and and the concept of writing, because you could take two people and put them through the exact same circumstance and what will happen is about half of those people you put through that will be destroyed, broken, ruined husks of people. They will come out of it at the worst of themselves and the half of them will rise up to the challenge and become greater and become out of it with the best of themselves. Uh, it's something I've talked... I think the first time I talked about it on the show was actually in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. The, the thematic literary contrast between Kirk... Going through all this hell and khan going through all this hell and how the two skewed as a result of their similar experiences so theoden he sees the beacons and there's there's a couple of seconds of hesitation and then he's like and and rohan will answer i like to think that the severity of the beacons helped to make that decision but I would also like to think that Theoden is a good man and a good king and therefore would make that decision anyways. Just my thought on the matter. <sighs> um, hang on, I'm checking my notes. Why is there, where's there a thing right there like that? Oh, that's for later. Um, so Sam, there, there's a couple of scenes that I've actually kind of skipped over because I tried to categorize my notes. That's why I was confused there for a second. I was like, that happened like 30 minutes ago in the movie. So Sam finally shows how much Gollum, and I'm gonna just start calling him Gollum from now on, by the way. Uh, Sam shows how much Gollum has finally started getting to him by literally threatening him, and then later on he actually physically attacks him and is shocked at himself for what he did. Sam is not exactly a violent or horrible person as I think I've made very clear throughout the course of these films. And so to even see himself go to that thing kind of helps to emphasize just how bad things have gotten. And then there's Gollum's deception, where Sam loses it. And then Frodo sends Sam away for two reasons. And the best part is both of them are wrong. The first reason he sends them away is because of the ring. you know, The call, the poison that is seeping through his mind. And the fact that Gollum has been kind of feeding that for his own selfish ends. The second reason is actually far more interesting to me because he sends him away to save him. You can't help me anymore, Sam. Go home. He doesn't say go away. He doesn't say get out. There's no anger. There's sort of a melancholy. Go home, Sam. And again, both of those reasons are wrong. (laughs) I love it. Uh, I'm debating what order to talk about these things. Let's talk about Gothmog really quick. Uh, For those of you not fully aware, Gothmog is the deformed, kind of crippled, orcish leader who has been portrayed as someone who is more intelligent uh, by a factor than the other orcs, but is much less competent. Now that was kind of a, a thing that was done for the film specifically. Gothmog was actually a half troll in the books. But I kind of like the film version of this better because it makes him an interesting parallel to Denethor. I'll talk more about that as the, as those scenes come. But right at the beginning, there's this great scene where they, they, they do the charge against Osgiliath, which I'll talk about in just a moment. And then there, uh, not Haldir, I can't remember the name of the gentleman. I, I didn't even re- write, write it down. The guy, the guy who was assisting uh, Faramir this whole time, he has already been injured and is lying on the ground and is basically going to bleed out and die. He is a dying man. And so Gothmog, who is pathetic, gra- grabs someone else's spear and kills a dying man. Obviously the scene is there to help establish some of the cruelty and the darkness that's coming. This is a dark film, as I mentioned but it also helps to emphasize how pathetic Gothmog is, this leader of men. And yet again, we have another parallel between men and orcs. Which leads me to Asgiliath and Faramir. So Faramir does very well with what he has, which makes sense. We've already established in the last movie that Faramir is pretty good at what he does. He is actually a very competent tactician and probably a good leader in general. He certainly has the loyalty of his men. (laughs) as we'll see later. Huh. So, one of the things I like about it is that it helps to emphasize how bad things are by the fact that they established Faramir as good, and he's actually managing a fairly good defense of Osgiliath, and they have to do a running retreat, a literal, excuse me, a fighting retreat, as they're still being chased and attacked by the Nazgul and, and the occasional arrow shot, to help emphasize just how absolutely overwhelmed they are. That the orcs are not skilled and not strong and not elite and not anything. They're just washing over them. They could probably just take the orc... Actually, there's no probably. They could just take the orcish army if they could, like, grab it up into a telekinetic ball and just drop it on us, Gilead, and it would just... it would win. Because that's how many orcs they are swarming into that place with. It's insane. And that is Sauron's approach And I'll be talking about two of the reasons I think that is why later, but I'm emphasizing it again because that it's also a nice contrast to what Saruman was doing. Saruman had a 10,000-strong army, but it was 10,000 of elite with with good weapons and with good training. What we have here is way more than 10,000. I actually... Uh, several people have tried to estimate the numbers. It's frickin' huge. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It is, it is very, very large. And not elites, because they don't really need to be. So Faramir loses. The Nazgul show up. They do the fighting retreat. Uh, and of course they would have lost even more men if Gandalf had not personally ridden out. A little bit of a narrative cheat, the fact that he took Pippin with him. And I mention that because if uh, Faramir had not seen Pippin he wouldn't have been able to be like oh my god you know i've seen frodo now i'm willing to forgive it because it 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 helps structure the scenes better logically what should have happened is gandalf runs out and then they come back and then they rejoin her and there's like a separate scene which breaks the tempo a bit of him interacting with pippin and then being like ah a hobbit and then they lead to the revelation this way, they, they cut off the excess fat, if you will, of this extra scene, and keep the tempo quick by having Far, Faramir having just barely escaped this battle, still out of breath, and he sees Pippin, and it's like, I offer you hope. Let's figure out what's going on, blah, blah, blah. So I'm willing to forgive it for, for uh, cinematic purposes, even though narratively it is kind of a cheat. I also give praise to both Pippin and Gant... Oh, excuse me, uh... I don't remember the guy who plays Pippin all of a sudden. Ian McKellen and Guy, uh, because they do some great facial acting when they find out the news about Frodo. It's also helpful because it helps us, the audience, keep something in mind that we may have forgotten. We've been seeing Frodo at basically every step of the way, for, for since the beginning, actually. So we know what Frodo's been up to. They don't. Remember, the last word that they had of Frodo? was all the flip back at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, when they got on the boat. They have heard nothing since then. There was even a scene where Aragorn and Gandalf are talking about they don't even know if he's alive anymore. Who knows what's actually happened to him in the weeks or months, I actually forget the exact period of time, that has passed since then. So, finally getting news, not only that he has been found, but that he's alive and that he's that close that he was, he was actually past Osgiliath, has just got to be the most, oh, thank God, kind of a moment. And both of the, both of the actors get that across very nicely. I also note uh, that, that, that Ge- Faramir immediately seeks out Gandalf, as he should. I only point that out because it's one of many small things that they do to emphasize that Faramir is a wise individual. I pointed this out back in uh, Two Towers, and I point this out here as well. His manner of speech and the method by which he does things are are generally. He's the kind of person who would be a very good, well, king. Actually, he he would be, in in my opinion, he would be the kind of person who would be an excellent, wise leader. Uh, I hesitate to say a peacetime leader, but I do think he would be a better peacetime leader than a war, you know, a, a warrior king. I love it. There's this horrible, horrible scene where Faramir nails Denethor with the truth. He just smacks him in the face with it. Boromir would have taken the ring. And he's right. I mean, Honestly, most people would. And Faramir nails him with that. And again, we see this pathetic... And I wrote these words down. Pathetic, deranged, lost old man. Denethor is not at this point. And of course... <laughs> There's another great scene that helps to emphasize Faramir. There's like two scenes right in a row after this which help to emphasize Faramir's character as I've already described it. Uh, he has this great one between him and Pippin where the two talk and, and discuss the situation. So then we build up to one of my favorite scenes which is ironic because it is so damned obvious that it might as well have a neon glittering sign over the the entirety of the scene. So let's do the build up here. So Denethor acts differently around others. We've seen this, uh, I think, once up to this point in time. Yes, once in Two Towers. He, The way he acts to Pippin here, you know, Ah, yes, everything, I must be the lordly steward. (laughs) I think it's also the last time we see him act that way. He puts on a little bit of a show, basically, and it drops almost immediately into harshness when dealing with Faramir. He mentions the fact that uh, you know we should not yield the defenses that your brother long held. I hate to be a nitpicker, but that's actually basically not true. I mean, yes, they definitely held Osgiliath in the past, but they had to retake Osgiliath because of how bad the battle is. It, it, in other words, it's, it's a flagrant falsehood that he's saying just to put Boromir further up on a pedestal and to push Faramir further down. Boromir and Faramir. Where do they come up with these names? Um, Faramir's realization hurts when he says, you now wish our places had been swapped. Again, that wisdom showing. But that's not the bad part. The bad part is when Faramir, or excuse me, Denethor, confirms it. When (laughs) Denethor... Maybe I'm weird, because I actually have a really good relationship with my dad and my mom, actually. But the idea of my dad admitting to me that he wishes I was dead is such a horrifying thought that I actually can't process it. I, I can't put that one in my head. I don't have a life experience equivalent to that. I, I don't have the ability to comprehend what Far—what what, what Faramir felt in that moment when his father admitted he wished he had died instead of Boromir. And then, of course, Faramir does something very foolish and very stupid because that emotional bo- bond is so horrible and so impacting. And of course, he says, you know, if I return, think well, think better of me, father. And Denethor's response is so goddamn cold. That will depend on the manner of your return. Also, he was right. It did depend on the manner of his return. Although I'll talk about that a little bit in a bit here. So Faramir is leaving, and he gives his excuses. You know, I would gladly give my life for my people, and blah, 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 blah. And Gandalf sees right through all the bullcrap and says, your father loves you. He will remember it before the end. And what's funny is, Denethor remembers that a, a few seconds before he, before the end, basically. Which is sad. The following scene has no subtlety whatsoever, but is poetry in how well it is crafted. The audio, I want you to pay special attention to the audio. They deliberately allow certain things from the two scenes that are being spliced together to be heard, and certain things not. So it emphasizes through absence what's happening and what isn't happening. Um. It still gets to me. I actually cried up. I teared up at three points in this movie while I was rewatching watching this for this rumination. And this was one of them. The, the, the silence, the false king sitting in an empty room, feasting as his men and his son die for no reason. And of course, again, very obvious as he's eating these, these berries and these t- tomatoes, and little driblets of red go down his lips. And of course the singing sing for me and gandalf sits alone this is then immediately contrasted by theoden who despite his failings is 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 walking through unifying the men organizing we have to do this has the loyalty of his people he even flat out says we cannot defeat mordor but we will ride into battle nonetheless i know that's later but that kind of helps to emphasize the difference between the two right there. Remember, Theoden had the loyalty of some of his men, even when Grima and Saruman were still in charge. And those men were so loyal to him that they were willing to kind of sit back on the hope that their king would be freed. Remember that? So Aomer, Eowyn, God, not Aomer, sorry, that's later. Eowyn, bonds with Mary in the camp and then Aomer calls her out on it and she she gives a a nonsense excuse and he immediately cuts through that. It's the second time we've seen that in like three scenes. He immediately cuts through the bullcrap and says, no, you just want to come out and fight. And what's funny is the speech he gives to her is very poignant in its own right because it speaks to how really horrible battle actually is, especially a war battle. It's a mess of terror and blood and screams and pain and lack of perception. Not really being able to tell what's going on or how it's happening. Just this mess of chaotic doom. And he knows that. He is a soldier. And he tries to impart this on her. And he seems a little harsh as he does it. But, well, it makes sense in context. It took me a while, I gotta admit. Uh, I think it was my third viewing of this movie when I finally saw the Dead King in the chasm. By the way, I decided to look up his name. They never say it in the film, but I usually know most of these characters' names even though they don't mention them. Uh, his name is the Dead King. I have no freaking clue who this guy is. I mean, I know he's the Oathbreaker and I know that whole thing, but I, I don't know his name. So I'm just gonna call him the Dead King because he's not the Lich King. Sorry, that job's taken. <laughs> I like, so he mentions how, Ar, uh, Elrond mentions to Aragorn how Arwen is dying. I'm just using so many proper names here, it occurs to me that someone who doesn't know these names is probably completely lost. Anyways, Elrond mentions to Aragorn, in the presence of Theoden, <laughs> that Arwen is dying. Now, that actually makes a lot of sense to me, and it adds one last little tidbit to the nature of shall we say the metaphysical because we do know there's a metaphysical aspect in addition to that there's literally magic there is power in things like oaths and bonds that tree and gondor that will literally bloom when there's a king of gondor is a good example of that the the dead king who actually has to obey the line of gondor and can be released by the line of gondor is another good example of that So I mention this because to me it actually makes sense that Arwen is quite literally dying, not because she gave up her immortality per se, which I'm still not sure I believe, but because she's an elf. And the shall we say the balance of Middle-earth's overall spiritual energy is tilting severely towards the negative side. You know, everything that's been happening with the battle, everything that's been happening with uh, Mordor, that that shot at Minas Morgul I mentioned earlier, all of this is literally poisoning the spiritual atmosphere, if you will. And so in the same way that if you were to breathe in toxic fumes, they would slowly poison you, Otowin and other elves present here are breathing in poisonous spiritual air as opposed to physical air. And of course it would be affecting Otowin worse than others, because she had already allowed some of her grace to pass on to Aragorn, helping to save him earlier, and probably passed on some to Frodo, too, in the first film. So, she is weaker and therefore less capable of enduring it, just like a real person, with the fumes uh, analogy I used, would be less capable of, of you know, a person with with worse of an immune system would be less capable of enduring that. So, once again, we have a fool's hope. We have... Uh, Anduril Flame of the West and Aragorn being forced to become king I'll talk about that in a moment but I mention this because the whole idea of rounding the Oathbreakers together and forming them into this undead army is insane (laughs) it it doesn't seem like it by the the events of the movie and so I have to force myself to take a step back and think that's freaking crazy they shouldn't have even survived getting there in fact the dead still try to kill them And I'll talk about that later. But then Aragorn is forced to become king. And I stress that because I think as much as he has been acting as a leader, as a king since the first film, he only finally takes up the mantle because he has to. But that is actually a part of his character arc. A part of being a leader is knowing when you have to do something. Just like Theoden did earlier, when he had to respond to Gondor's call for aid. Just like the fact that, he, Theoden himself says this flat out, he rides off because he must. And then they say, we can't beat Mordor, and he says, no, we can't, but we're still going to go out and do it. Thus the implication, left unspoken there, is because we have to. And it's a very horrible thing to have to embrace and accept that. It also helps to tie in later because uh, Aragorn, when he finally reaches the paths of the dead, you know, he says, I do not fear death. At this point, I don't think he has any say in this thing. He has to keep going. He has to go forward for all of his people, for all of his friends, for everything. He does not have the luxury of fear anymore. And then, of course, Legolas and Gimli follow their friends in because that's what friends are for. <laughs> There's a great line. I give hope to men. I like that because it's not victory. It's hope. Oh, and of course, you know, Aragorn has to break up with Eowyn. I only bring that up because, (laughs) while this doesn't need more uh, screen time, I find it interesting that Eowyn and Faramir are noticeably a good match. Even though they only spend, I think, exactly one, maybe two scenes uh, together, The two match each other quite well. She is basically a warrior princess. She is a damn, damn good in a fight and ultimately is the one who wants to be out fighting. He, while he is okay in a fight, is much more the leader, the person who wants to think and understand and philosophize and the person who wants to avoid that. And of course, this is completely ignoring the fact that a merger of those two people would be an immense political win for Gondor and for Rohan you know, the political alliance there kind of a thing. But anyways. So I have a note here that says, why does the army of the dead screw with them? And I paused the film for a bit, and I just sat and, and processed that for a while. And then it finally clicked with me, and I rewatched the scene just to verify, and I was like, yeah, okay. I, I don't have proof of this, of course, but my analysis is that, based on what they were saying, based on their circumstance, the only people who would be allowed to pass... How do I put this? If the group, if the king of Gondor was not capable of withstanding them, literally trying to bury him in their corpses and and tossing him into the brink, if they could not survive, they were not worth their time. He was not truly the king of Gondor. Having done so, having endured their test, having survived this attack, He then proves himself, which allows him to come forward and say, All right, we'll fight. There's also a very powerful scene where Aragorn weeps. It's a quiet sort of weeping. And I like it because in that moment, Aragorn feels like he has failed. Like he is now staring at the doom of all of his people and all of his friends. Because he's staring at the ships. They're right down there. And there's nothing he can do about it. He did all that he could, and he failed. Or at least that's what he thinks. He is literally one step away from that despair point that so many others have already sunk into or have crawled out of. And that's when the king comes out and rescues him from that. <sighs> I love the parallels between Pippin and Mary in this film, too. Pippin, of course, knelt before Denethor. And in response, uh, so Pippin becomes one of Gondor. And Denethor demands servitude. He he demands the speech. He demands he kisses his ring. Uh, I I the second most recent time. So two times ago before watching it this time. The the group I was watching this with actually like were like ah what the hell when they when they he forced Pippin to kiss his ring and I agree what the hell dude. And then of course he he treats him as if he is just cattle effectively sing for me boy. Merry kneels before Theoden. This actually happened a bit ago. but he And Theoden graciously accepts, names him Esquire, and when he is left behind, he does so out of a kindness. He says, this is not a place for you and your war, and we can't bear you as a burden. I am leaving you behind for your sake. As opposed to Denethor, who couldn't give ten bits of a damn about Pippin. The contrast between the two, again, continues but also helps to emphasize... Oh, and by the way, of course, now Mary is of Rohan. And so we got one Hobbit of Rohan, one Hobbit of Gondor, and thus the two are in their own way still a team, and that will help to to carry forward into the finale of the film. So now we have the Battle of Minas Tirith, uh, also known as the Battle of Pelennor Fields. I'm going to go ahead and just say that this is the best battle in cinematic history, in my opinion. While there are others that are good, this one blows all of them out of the water and is long. I meant towards the end of this page. Uh, the entire next page, Still, the battle is still happening. And... Let's see here. Yeah, it looks like at least a little bit of the next page after that. There is so much. This battle goes on so long, as it should, actually. And it goes through stages as well, which I also like. So, I I I once again just want to give immense praise to the cinematography, to the camera work, to the lighting, to the models, to the CGI, to the to the music, just every to the level of detail. The level of detail in this battle is insane. So we once again see the comparison between Gothmog and Denethor directly, actually. Gothmog literally can't get off his horse, uh, well, excuse me, his warg, without help. He's hey, I don't need help. And then it cuts over to Denethor, who is completely incapable of actually leading his men, and in fact is so pathetic, as I mentioned earlier, he has not even prepared defenses. They are not ready for this invasion. They're just sitting there like, what do we do? What do we do? And then they fire the heads of the dead. I mentioned earlier that Faramir's men were loyal to him. They were so loyal that they went and, out and rode with him to their deaths. It's okay. They came back to Gondor in the end. Well, part of them came back. Now that's in bad taste, but I'm, I'm saying that to try and lighten the mood because what the orcs actually do with the head catapult tactic is messed up. But it's also very important as part of Sauron's overall strategy. And I'm kind of building to a point here. So just keep in in your mind that morale hit that they do. And then Denethor sees the army laid out before him. It's a great shot. And it dwarfs the one and two towers. We actually see the full breadth of the first army. First of four (laughs) that we know of that Sauron has access to. And he completely loses it. And, and I have a note here that says, Gandalf is like, damn it, why do I have to do this? <laughs> of course, Gandalf has... Smacks him in the face. When I saw this in the theaters, the audience burst into applause when Gandalf smacked Denethor in the face. Just... Yeah! I didn't even hear his next line, prepare for battle, because everyone was still cheering. The battle's amazing. I don't have much else to add to that. Uh, Gandalf, of course, takes charge very quickly. It's one of the first times we've seen Gandalf have to take a leadership position. And I like the fact that none of them question the Mithrandir at all. I mean, why would they? Pippin, he does a good job. He's lost, he's dazed, he's confused. He's never actually been in a real war battle before. I mean, he's been in effectively skirmishes or you know, small little encounters before now, and even then he barely was involved. And... He needs a purpose. He needs orders, if I could put it into such a thing. Which naturally he is given. And then the first disc of the extended edition ends on Grand. 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 <laughs> I like the way they portray Grand in the movie quite a bit, actually. I also have to admit, my enjoyment for that helped to to tailor my enjoyment of a creature over in World of Warcraft called a Gron, Slightly different spelling and completely different creature. I just thought I'd mention that. So note Sauron's strategy is now being portrayed, pretty much laid bare. Sauron's strategy is twofold. Despair, and wave after wave after wave after wave of his own men. Just washing over the enemy and trying to sap their morale so they have no capacity to 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 think to resist. Now, that's funny in its own right, because that's the only strategy he needs. He doesn't need to be tactical. He doesn't need to be brilliant. He's got all the advantages. So then we cut over to... Uh, oh, I have a quick note here. Poor, poor Peter Jackson got shot by Legolas. Mm. <laughs> so... And then we cut back to the shelob situation you're welcome by the way i'm sorry i, I say that kind of harshly i, I apologize I, <laughs> I don't care for spiders much uh, i've been fighting actual you know arachnophobia for most of my life i actually went out of my way to actually watch the whole scene it has been so long since i've done that that i don't actually remember the last time i did I'm not actually sure I have ever seen the full extended edition, I don't know if they added anything or not, shot of the Shelob scenes. Ever. But i powered through it. It's just a monster. It's just a monster. What I love is the fact that, despite all of... Uh, golems manipulations and lies and deceptions this was actually the way forward this was the way into mordor that did not involve going through the black gates so i mean they kind of had to deal with this anyways it's just if they had been forewarned maybe they might have been able to have some defense i don't know and uh and of course uh the the last of the chekhov's guns finally goes off the last of the gifts that Galadriel gave to the group finally has come in he's got she's got he's got the light of elendil El- elend i can't do pronunciation forgive me the light which of course physically and probably spiritually hurts something like shelob and literally saves frodo's life actually and i love it because gollum actually gives uh, frodo the rage ironically in order to be able to escape <laughs> of course gollum is not exactly what you'd call a villainous mastermind his whole plot was lead them in there, and then go get the ring. That was, that was his plot. So he's just sitting there like, ha ha, I won, I won. And Frodo's like, oh, good to you. And then Gollum freaks out because he's like, whoa, wait, hang on. You weren't supposed to get free. It's a nice touch. And then he pleads to Frodo. And I like it because Frodo kind of responds with pity, of course, but also the realization of how bad he has gotten. I want you to keep in mind how differently Frodo's acting in that scene, though. Just keep it in the back of your head. And then Sam, <laughs> I love it, Sam, who is a nobody, who is no one, he's a freaking gardener, finds his courage without strength. I mentioned that part because some people will argue this back and forth, and there's a lot to be discussed about this topic, but one of the reasons I love Sam so damn much and why he is the hero of this trilogy is because... He has no strength to call back on. It's relatively easier if you have power, you know, whether it is be great strength or great skill or literal magic or whatever, if you have power, it is easier to stand up and do the right thing because it doesn't cost you that much. It's when you have nothing. When you are a gardener with someone else's sword and someone else's light trying to fight a spider that's eight meters long, that's when you're a hero, a real hero and that is damned impressive what he pulls off there uh we're gonna cut away from them for a moment i'm gonna cut back to the battle still in progress by the way the battle of Pelennor fields mary gives a great speech that also dovetails nicely into the sam scene i just mentioned he mentions i'm not a great warrior i'm not a great man of rohan i'm not capable of great deeds i just want to help my friends That, of course, immediately contrasts uh, Denethor. So Denethor has decided he's going to go burn to death along with his son. He, he's way off the deep end. He's gone. And he has this great line, which I didn't understand the first time I saw it, where it says, why do the fools fly? Better to die sooner than late. What he's doing is he's positing a question, and then the sentence ends, question mark, And then he answers his question with his next sentence. Better to die sooner than late, for die we must. That is where Denethor is at right now. I bring this up because I don't think it matters to him that Faramir's alive. I think he knows Faramir's alive, and he is so far gone that he doesn't care. Better to die sooner than late. Better that Farmir die by my hands, burning with his father, than he die to whatever horrors the orcs have in mind for us. Then we have the war trolls show up. The Olughai, Olughai. Uh, they never actually mention this or talk about this in the movies, so I'm just going to say whoa and move on. Uh, yeah, he, he has this line. He's already he's burning. He's already burning. <sighs> So day and night, the Battle of Pelennor Fields continues. It's a great fact, the fact that they keep track of that and that the sun goes down uh, as the battle is still going. And of course, less defended than Helm's Deep, I already mentioned that. Then we get to something I've been building up to a little bit. There's a scene that's bothered me for years, and I can't believe this never connected with me before. The Witch King of Agmar confronts Gandalf the White, who has already overpowered frickin' Saruman. Gandalf is pretty high tier. And he is beaten by the Witch King of Agmar. And don't tell me it's because of that whole prophecy of no man can kill him. Which they don't even explain the source of that in the movie. So for the sake of the movies, I'm just going to assume was just a saying that that leads to a a little twist of of words later on. How does the Witch King beat him? I can't believe I never saw this before. I want you to picture that this is an RPG. And the Witch King has really decent stats. But ultimately he's just like an elite unit, right? However, the more those around him are coated in despair, the more dread they feel, he gets stat bonuses based on that dread. And conversely, if they are filled with hope, his stats are reduced. I know that's kind of a crude way to get across my point, but I think, I think you understand what I mean by this. Because in that moment, Gandalf was, also, was in the exact same point that Aragorn was just in. Back uh back when he had just gotten out of the realms of the dead. He was right, he was literally on the edge of despair. Right there. And he had basically given up. By the way, there's a great scene where Pip, there's, there's a great bit where Pippin charges the fell beast and then is so paralyzed by it that he he just he. Keeps... <laughs> and so <sighs> he is in such despair in that moment. Gandalf is. That it empowers the Witch-King substantially. And allows the Witch-King to break Gandalf's weapon. Literally, as well as metaphorically. And then my favorite scene in all six movies happens. As a horn sounds. And hope starts blossoming within Gandalf's chest. As he understands what that means. And the Witch-King flees. And a red sun rises... Remember I mentioned that back in Two Towers? A red dawn rises as Rohan finally arrives at the battle. A battle that by this point has been going on for about a day, solid. I love the speech. I really love the speech that Theoden gives. (sighs) This was the second time I teared up. I'm tearing up just thinking about it. They charge knowing they will die. You know, that, that cry, death. And they do it anyways. They do it knowing it is for a purpose. They do it knowing that they will accomplish something. They do it because they have actually acknowledged their fear and the horrible fate that awaits them and are not letting it stop them from doing what must be done. And it's a great scene. And thus, Theoden does what he must do, and his character arc finally completes as he rises up to the challenge and acknowledges what it means to be a king, both in good and in bad. And he leads his men into the charge. And thus, the enemy's greatest weapon is broken, the weapon of despair. And of course, a properly coordinated cavalry charge can absolutely wreck infantry. Then I have a note here. It just says wave two. Because then things get worse again. The battle isn't even, <laughs> the battle isn't even over yet. Then the Oliphants and the Haradrim show up. I think these are the Haradrim. These might not be. But the Oliphants show up regardless. And holy crap. Now, there has actually been some... Most people I know who like to theorycraft these things all agree that Theoden's charge against the infantry line was the absolute correct thing to do even from a purely tactical perspective. There's a lot more debate in how he should have dealt with the Oliphant situation. Some people argue that he shouldn't have just straight out out charged because cavalry isn't that effective against enemies like that. But other people point out that that initial charge might have been a mistake, but facing them and taking them out was something that was kind of necessary. For my part, if I was thinking purely logically and purely tactically, I would say trying to use these uh, the speed of the horses to try and outmaneuver the elephants might have been the best choice there. I think he took them head-on because he had just learned that lesson and was still riding high on that lesson. Ride out and meet them head-on. Whether that was correct or not, who knows, and we'll never know at this point. That's all armchair generaling at that point. What I find interesting, by the way, is the Haradrim forces were almost undoubtedly there to stop any opposing army of, of Rohans or whatever, because they wouldn't really been been useful in the siege. But then again, that's also what the pirates were there for, too. So... So there's this great scene here. Uh First of all, Gothmog fights Eowyn. That's not the great scene. I only mention it because it feels kind of tacked on. Especially since Aragorn comes up and ends up saving her. I, yeah. But no... um, so in this situation where the tides have turned and hope has been burgeoned, what does the witch king of Agmar do? Well, his weapon's been broken, so he's got to reforge it. So he dives straight for King Theoden. He knows how men work. He knows how hope and despair work. So he charges him, takes him down, and intends to slowly eat him in front of his men to completely break them. Then Eowyn gets in the way I kill you if you touch him i love the way she says that i wonder how many takes it took her to get across just the right amount of emphasis in each syllable and then the witch king has that mace wow that mace uh that that mace that's probably physically impossible to actually lift if it was actually made of stone or metal holy crap um it actually injures her severely through a shield. I mean, I know it was a wooden shield, but that just gets across the point. And then, Mary and Eowyn defeat the the Witch King. I almost said the Witch King. The Witch King. And I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Because one of the things that the two of them have been on a journey for is not allowing their own fear and their own despair to get to them. She already mentioned her thoughts on the matter. And how Mary is the one who helped burgeon her... And then she helps burgeon him when they actually get to the battle, him before the eve, and her at the battle. The two of them have helped define each other and helped to push away that despair, and thus, he has no true weapon to use against them, other than a mace that could probably break concrete. But he wasn't looking for a little thing, was he? Backstab <sighs> Nice bookend. I know your face. King Theoden, first thing he says to her is, I know your face, Eowyn. It's a great scene. It, it's painful, of course. I don't have much to add to it other than, you know, I, 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 he dies unashamed. He dies knowing that he stood up and was a leader, a king. And, of course, she is now technically the next heir, I think. Or is Aomir, I'm not actually sure at that point. Whatever. What's actually going to happen is Faramir and Eowyn's child is going to be the real heir. Let's just be honest about it. So, the battle's ended. They win. The undead army cinches it. It's actually been debated that they might have been able to win with just Rohan and Gondor. I don't think so. Because even if... So, first of all, the Corsairs would have been quite a bit of an additional force to fight an already weakened, already tired force And then, of course, you know there was still quite a bit of battle to be had when the undead army came in place of that. And for not the first time, Sauron has lost because of a unification of his enemies. Maybe that reaper thinking wasn't too out of place. So he releases the spirits. I only mention that because some people have said, why did he do that? Why didn't he keep them on retainer? I don't think he was capable. I think the only thing he could have done is release them because if he decided not to he would be portraying himself as someone who doesn't keep his deals and therefore would either lose their loyalty or worse. So no, he had to let them go. Uh, there's a scene where Aomer is grieved when he finally finds his sister, which is way overacted. Most actors don't actually know how to act grief. <laughs> I, I don't mean that as an insult. It's, it's a statement of fact. Most actors go, when they're trying to do grief, when the more subtle thing is, is the, the real way to do that. But uh, it does help to finally conclude that point that I've been leading up to several times now. That Aomer really did love and care for his sister. I mean, of course he did. But more to the point, he was trying very hard to push her away from battle so that he would never have to go through what he is now enduring. The thought of losing her. I mean, he could lose his men, he could lose himself, but please don't ask me to have to deal with the death of my sister. Because he can't take it. And in fact, he probably would have slipped into despair if not for the fact that she was healable. And of course, she recovers, as do Mary, as do Pippin. <sighs> so there's a line here that I just reread like three times really quick, trying to understand what it was actually saying. Give me one second. <sighs> Sorry about that. Had to close the door. There's a line that I had to reread a couple of times. It's the line that says, It's going to the eye. And it took me a moment to figure that out. Uh, we've already seen back in Two Towers that the orcs aren't exactly organized. I made that point about the difference between the orcs and the Uruk-hai. I keep calling them orcs. The orcs and the uruk I have this impression that Sauron, one of the reasons he uses such an overwhelming numbers of troops for his orcs is because he has to because he takes attrition on a regular basis. How many of you have ever played a video game where an army takes attrition, literally just losing people under circumstances thanks to supplies or bad terrain or whatever? Picture that, except worse, because the orcs are constantly killing each other over basically nothing. Now, yes, in this case, it's probably worse than normal, because they were fighting over the mithril shirt and the, the pretties and the baubles, as they are wont to do. But I honestly think that his orcs kill each other on a very regular basis, which is why he needs in the tens or hires of thousands of orcs in order to be able to field anything at all. I've often wondered how Sauron maintains the loyalty of his orcs, actually. In the movie, of course, they don't go into that at all. So, I like how the order in which Sam says, "This This is for blah, blah, blah. So first he says, This is for Frodo! Stab! And this is for the Shire! Stab! And this is for my old gaffer! (laughs) It's so perfect. It's exactly what someone like him... Like, he's emulating, you know, badass characters and what they would say. But he's saying what's relevant to him. And that just makes it all the more perfect. So, remember how I mentioned how Frodo was acting a little bit differently? How much of that do you think was Frodo genuinely starting to, you know, recognize what he was doing... How much of it do you think was the fact that he didn't have the ring on him anymore? We know Frodo was pretty out of it because he didn't even notice that he didn't have the ring anymore. We don't even know the exact moment at which Sam took it from Frodo. But I bring that up because it actually wouldn't surprise me if Frodo, and it makes sense to me, if Frodo had been starting to do better and was reconnecting with Sam and, and getting his head more in the game because he didn't have that damn ring around his neck. So, yeah, then they see the fact that there are still orcs in Mordor. So many orcs in Mordor. And that leads to two realizations. Obviously those orcs are in the way of Frodo and Sam, which is a problem. But there's actually another problem, a much more long-term problem. That's just another army ready to go. Remember Sauron's tactics? Wave after wave after wave. How much longer do you think it's going to take him to get another, another, another army going? I mean, assaulting Mordor is just not in the cards for Gondor and Rohan. So they have no choice but to sit back and rebuild while he rebuilds. I bring that up because it's one of the reasons why Aragorn ultimately had no real choice but to confront Sauron now. Obviously, it was not for the purposes of a military victory. But he still had no real choice. The only other choice was to, be to accept the fact that there's now an axe hovering over, uh, let's just call it a sword, because, you know, to accept a sword of Damocles, just sitting over the kingdoms, waiting to fall whenever Sauron gets around to it. Never mind the inclusion of the ring. If he didn't pull that effort, the odds of Sauron getting the ring have gone up significantly, and therefore ensuring loss. Uh, They never say it outright in the movies, but... I still think that the book perspective here is accurate. That one of the things that is clear, and Gandalf does say this outright, the enemy, in this case Sauron, never actually considers the fact that they're trying to destroy the ring. It never really enters his mind until the last moment when when Frodo puts the ring on in Mount Doom. That is the moment at which it occurs to Sauron, oh my god, they're trying to destroy it. Up until then, that was never in his thoughts. And why would it be? Remember what I mentioned all the way back at the very beginning when I started talking about these films, this trilogy. What is The One Ring's true greatest power? It is that siren call. It is the ability for it to entice you. I keep referring to it as a poison. To draw you to it. The idea of destroying it doesn't enter your mind. Remember what Isildur said. You know, I, I forget the exact quote, but you know, I all of all who follow in my bloodline will be bound to the ring, for I will risk no hurt to it. He was willing to swear an oath, which may have literal, physical, magical repercussions in a setting like this, that all of his children forever would be bound to the ring, just because it was that valuable to him, that precious. I know it's something that's kind of joked of in modern, you know, in modern literature and modern uh, fiction and whatnot. But that preciousness nature of the ring pretty much ensures that no one's going to try to destroy it. It's also, ironically, what ended up uh, ensuring Sauron's defeat in the books, but that's something else. So he sees Aragorn, and Aragorn has the sword. So the reason the diversion works is not because Aragorn is there and not because he brought an army. That's kind of... I mean, that's bonus points at that point. He decides to take the bait because the only possible reason in Sauron's mind that Aragorn would be making that move is if he is overconfident. If he is swollen up. Yes, I now have an advantage over Sauron. And what's the only thing that Sauron perceives that Aragorn would think of as an advantage over Sauron? So he thinks Aragorn has the ring. And he has seen Aragorn in proximity of what he believed to be the ring, so there's evidence for this. Um they do a great thing in the next several scenes. Uh Frodo's neck and the area right around here gets progressively worse and worse. Like the 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 chain the ring is on is literally digging more and more into his skin. It looks horrible and brilliant and awesome. It's it very much helps to emphasize that weight thing and as the, the ring itself is getting heavier, literally. There's a great scene where where Samwise says I don't think there will be a return home, Mr. Frodo. And it's a powerful scene because Sam was the one person who kept thinking in that direction of, well, of course we're going home. And now Sam, who has effectively completed his own hero's journey, now acknowledges that there is no returning home, and, true to himself, is refusing to let that stop him or change him in any way, shape, or form. We are still going forward. The end. That's, that's just how it is. And he offers a hand to Frodo to help carry him through the way. And it's it's very moving and very powerful. I don't actually have a lot of uh, notes for this. This is like ten minutes of stuff. And I only have like five little notes about this. <sighs> Before I get into the awesome stuff, I mentioned there were two big flaws in this film. Well, here's the second one. And this one, bugs the crap out of me. How did Sauron not see Frodo? The directing on that shot makes it very clear that the eye clearly saw Frodo. And the eye just fixates on him for several minutes, actually. How the hell does he not recognize that that's the ring, and it's right there, and, oh, okay, i got to deal with that. What would have actually smoothed this over is if he didn't actually see Frodo. But they reached an area... Let me, let me tell you how this scene could have been reconstructed to completely bypass this problem and still have the same narrative impact. So Frodo and Sam are going and they reach a point where the rocks re- basically plateau. All of a sudden there's no more cover. There's a huge stretch leading up the road up into the, the for- the name of the city in Mount Doom. I can't think of the name of it, you know, the forage area. And it's completely bare. No cover. That's their road. And they're like, okay. And they start to go out and the, and the eye kind of passes over it and they have to rush back into cover and they're like, And they're stuck there behind cover as the eye is just occasionally seeking over the same area. And they're like, we can't do this. We're going to be seen. And then, you know, Aragorn calls for his thing and the, the diversion happens and the eye's attention is drawn away. And that's what allows him to go forward. Rather than, oh, hey, there's a hobbit, probably with a ring that I just saw. Hmm, what, Aragorn's over there? Die, Aragorn! It just bugs the crap out of me. Moving on. It feels like something that was done because movie, you know. <sighs> so then there's the mouth scene, the mouth of Sauron, uh, which is, of course, in the extended only. Uh, note how he, I, I've talked before, this theme of despair and feeding off despair. This is probably the scene which is most literal when it comes to that. The mouth of Sauron literally feels their despair and reacts to it like, <laughs> you know and feeds off of it, and then stokes the furnace. The moment he realizes that he has hit a sweet spot, he just grinds those screws in as hard as he can, trying to make sure that he feeds that despair, and tries to continue advancing the will of his master. What I like about this is Aragorn's action. Because Aragorn chops his head off, Gimli has a great line, and then Aragorn says he refuses to believe it. It's up for debate if Aragorn actually believes it or not. But what's funny is it doesn't matter. Hear me out. As ever, the the choice has not changed. The choice is the same choice that it's been through the entire trilogy. You trust, you either capitulate, or you die. And in this case, Aragorn is choosing death. But the little asterisk that has never been added to the or die option is that hope. That fool's hope. And this is probably the most one in a million thing that has been presented to our heroes. Because they have the mithril shirt right there. They know it was Frodo's. That is Frodo's mithril shirt. There's no arguing that. There's no arguing that. So they now have as close to definitive proof as is possible that they have lost. And in the face of that, they face the choice of capitulation or death. And so, to quote Saruman, they choose death, and the fool's hope—that tiny little fragment, of a shard, of a fraction of hope that things might work out somehow—and so they, you know, they they, they stand up to it. Um, and there's this, there's this great scene where uh, Frodo is so immersed in darkness. I've actually quoted some of the things he says in that scene in my real life. that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, you know I, I don't remember the taste of strawberries I, I, I don't i I can't see the fields anymore I'll, there's There's nothing left between me and the wheel of fire. It's a powerful stuff. It helps to emphasize how Frodo is completely bathed in this despair and this darkness at this point. There's a very small touch right before the end. Aragorn is leading a combined Rohan-Gondor force. Probably the first time that those have been truly unified in a while. At least in the movies, I know, I know. Books, movies, etc. But what I love most about it is he gives this great speech, and the speech itself is best summarized, and, and in fact is surpassed in emotional impact by two words for Frodo. Because that is that sliver, that fool's hope, right there. And they charge, and he charges just like Theoden charged. And the first group to follow him is a hobbit of Gondor and a hobbit of Rohan. And very shortly after, the combined free peoples of Middle-earth charge after them. And I love it. It is, of course, worth noting that that was a losing battle. They were going to lose that battle. And they knew that. There's, there's no arguing that. Even ignoring what the movie does to make things go badly. Uh, personally, I kind of would have liked it if the Avatar of Sauron had been there. The angelic thing. That would have been neat. But, you know, we, we'll have an Oleg High, High instead. That's cool. You know, whatever. So here's a question for you. Did Frodo fail to, to drop the ring in? To destroy the ring forever? because the ring was at its closest to destruction remember the ring has a will of its own it knows it's in danger and it's probably cranking that siren's call up to 11 just no completely pouring it on more so than and we've already seen what it can do when it's doing it normally so this is the kind of thing that most people wouldn't be able to resist in general or did frodo fail to drop it in because the journey had broken him so sufficiently so thoroughly that he never fully healed well, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's skipping ahead he, d- he doesn't fully heal until he goes to the Undying Land so yeah, you get my point permanent scar kind of a situation it is also possible it's both and thus, in the final moments and one of the things I love about this is the Fellowship fails I'm serious, in the final moments the Fellowship fails because Sam can't really do what he needs to do against Frodo there and it's debatable if Sam could put it in either way. So, that was it. Sauron won. And thus, in a classical example of literary irony, Gollum, the one most consumed by the ring, the one who, when he first picks it up, this beautiful, angelic music plays. And you can feel what Gollum feels in that moment. You can feel the peace And the contentment and the rightness of the fact that now, he at long last has that which he desires most. The only thing he desires. And that beautiful music plays, even as people are dying, as the battle is raging on, as the Nazgul are charging. And it is because of Gollum's action, the one who who cherishes it more than anyone, even Sauron himself, that the ring is finally destroyed and he dies cradling it, keeping it out of the lava as long as he can. And thus, for a second time, Sauron's greatest strength and his edge that allowed him to endure and to win over so many others causes his defeat, except this time it's a little more permanent. Can you even imagine what it would be like if there was an enemy that you had known about, that your parents had known about, that your grandparents had known about, that for millennia there had been this enemy that was this constant, ever-present aspect of your society. And I don't mean like a culture or a nation or an idea. I mean there's this guy over there, big flaming eye, and that's the bad guy. And to have had generations upon generations of life, an entire series of cultures built around this, This is something I kind of brought up in in Chrono Trigger, actually. The idea that what would it be like to know that the Black Omen was there when you were born, and when your great-great-great-great grandparents were born. It's always been there. The idea of something so omnipresent. This actually came up in Voyager as well, actually. Uh, I don't remember the name of the episode. It's the one where they have the time-displaced planet. What would it be like to look at that enemy that has been an antagonist for Literally, as long as you and most of your relatives can remember, and to finally see it destroyed, to finally see it fall. I mentioned earlier tears and the grief thing. Several of the actors, especially Ian McKellen, really nail that. I mean, this isn't grief, these are happy tears, but their expressions say it all. It really gets across that impact of how big this moment is. And we see this from the macro scale. We see the army. We see the collapsing. We see, oh my God. And we see it from the micro scale because we've had these personal shots of all these characters and of Frodo and, and Sam. And Frodo finally saying, I can do it. I can finally see the Shire. I can finally see the leaves. He's gone. He's really gone. It's a powerful moment. Not that I want this, but wouldn't it be interesting if the movie ended with them on the slopes of Mount Doom and it just stopped there? But it doesn't. Instead, we have five or six endings, depending on how you define it. Before we get into this, I'm going to go ahead and say that the multiple endings don't bother me. Uh, I think the best way to explain why is because the first ending is actually the ending. I'll talk about that. I'm gonna go down the, the list here. And then everything after that is an epilogue. As any truly epic long-term story should have, my opinion. To use a video game parallel, in Dragon Age Origins, you know, the finale was, was the charge up the tower. The final battle, the climax, was the final battle with the, the archdemon. Then there was the ending, which was the scene that plays out in-game immediately after that. And then there was the epilogue, concluding everything and telling you how things go in the future, right? Imagine if it had just ended with the scene there and no epilogue. I mean, that would have worked, and it would have worked here too, but I personally think both would be lacking without that epilogue. So, I said it was debatable if it's five or six. It depends on if you define them on the slopes of Mount Doom being an ending or not. I don't think it is. Narratively speaking, it doesn't quite fit as an ending unless we're going with a completely different tone for the film, which they could have. But no, the first ending is when the Fellowship is reunited. And that's also the real ending. That is the ending of the story. All of the group are reunited for the first time in, uh, I forget the exact period of time, actually. It's been a while. In two movies. For the first time in two movies, the Fellowship is reunited, and the friends are there, and they're all happy to see each other, and there's just this happy, good feelings moment, as they are all successful and all victorious, and they did it. The second ending, and I'm going to start putting those in quotes, is the beginning of the epilogue. In this, we see the beginning of the new era for men. The unified king, Aragorn, and all the people around him. We see the end of the men storyline coming to its natural conclusion, now that they have strong leaders and the possibility of a future. We see the end of Arwen and Aragorn's storylines. Aragorn himself having finally accepted this, this, and accepting it with humility, not letting it go to his head. Arwen, of course, recovering. I mean, the poison's gone, why wouldn't she? And the two of them finally being reunited the Hobbits. Picture this for a moment. The High King of Men, the the High King of the Dominion of Men, has just knelt before these four Hobbits. Picture the impact of that that moment for just a bit. I mean, it seems almost obvious, but think about it from a political aspect, from a social aspect, from a culture aspect. That's huge, what he did there. And of course, Honors them and thanks them and, gratitu- and gives gratitude for them and their contributions. Their crucial, I might add, contributions, as I've been talking about through the film. Then we have the third ending, uh, with, by the way, some really, uh, really nice map work. Uh, the The path that goes to the map actually kind of follows the trail of the of the fellowship. It's a nice little touch. Um, I meant to write down the name of the guy. I forgot him. I forgot to do so. There's a nice touch where they show one of the, uh, the hobbits who was actually from the, one of the very first scenes in Fellowship of the Ring who's just kind of sweeping his front yard. And it's been about a year, 13 months actually. I know that date. Uh, 13 months and he's sweeping her. nothing's changed is the point immediate visual again obvious but visual disparity there between the four hobbits who are all distinctly and notably different and in the scene thereafter they're all sitting together quietly at the bar completely separate from the merriment and otherwise enjoyment of the other hobbits thereby further emphasizing how different they are and yet it's not a bad thing see that that's the important part of the scene because then Sam finally gets up the courage to meet Rosie The two of them finally tie the knot. And Sam, Mary, and Pippin have their ending. And they have their good ending, basically. I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a little bit. And thus, the point, though, the thematic point of this particular point of the epilogue is that they were changed, but they actually were changed for the better. That it's not a bad thing, I should say, actually. That's, That's a better way to put it. That it's not a bad thing that they were changed. That they don't really fit in anymore. doesn't really matter because... Their home now, and they can still live their lives here. Then we have the fourth ending. This is when Bilbo and Frodo leave Middle Earth, concluding and fully ending their stories. Both of them as outsiders, both of them uh, finally finding their own particular place in things. This is when Frodo's story finally ends, and where Bilbo's story finally ends, and basically where everyone's story ends, except for Sam's. He's the only one left uh, untouched at this one. It's a fairly long scene. You'll notice I'm just kind of jumping over it, but it's well done. It's well handled. They head off to the Undying Lands, and then the fifth and final ending is the most unnecessary ending. Actually, before I get to that, real quick, I have this note here that I scribbled down earlier in the rumination. Remember that? Uh... Several points in all three movies, there have been characters, wise characters like Galadriel or Gandalf or Elrond, who have basically flat out said, the quest will claim his life. Or Frodo's like, I don't think I'm coming home from this. This is finally paid off here. It's a little, a little bit of a cheat, but it's okay because it does make sense. Because as Frodo himself points it out, we set out to save the Shire, and we did. But it wasn't for me. I didn't come home. You came home, Sam. In other words, the quest for the ring did claim Frodo's life. It just didn't kill him. Frodo's life ended because of the hardship and the nightmare he went to. Think about all the things in real life that we have to endure. And think about post-traumatic stress and the people who have gone through terrible things in their lives and have to endure them. Being honest, most of the people that I know personally who have suffered or are suffering from post-traumatic stress have not endured the kind of hardships that Frodo did. So it is logical that when he gets home, well, when he gets to the Shire, he doesn't get home. So then we lead into the fifth ending, which is the most unnecessary, but at the same point, it still serves a purpose, a very important purpose, even if it's kind of a cliché. Because the purpose of the fifth ending, which is Sam, it's just Sam and Rosie and their kids, it's showing the, the conclusion of what Sam said at the end of Throne, uh, Two Towers, excuse me. In other words, that there's some that there's good in the world and it's worth fighting for. That things can go back to being good again. That the point of that was this is the happily ever after. That after everything they went through, they were rewarded for all their efforts and all their struggles, and things got better. This was the reward. This was the end of the, the, the road. And I really, really like that. And I really, really like these movies. <sighs> it has been a treat to go through this trilogy. Thank you, patrons, for funding and requesting these. Um, I'm not sure how the viewership is going to change over the next three weeks, because now we're going to go back and look at the three Hobbit movies. I guess we'll see when we get there. See you around, guys.